Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode of the Queens of England podcast is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 180,000 audiobooks and other spoken word products. Listeners to the show cannot help but notice that I am a bit of a fan of the immortal bard William Shakespeare, and who isn't? One of the great joys of covering this period is that I've been able to quote sections from the play and insert scenes from some of my favourite productions. Today, though, I'm going to recommend something a bit special, a full cast recording of the three Henry VI plays, with narrators including, amongst others, the Tenth Doctor, David Tennant. These are some of Shakespeare's most famous histories and are a fascinating way into this bloody period of English history. Follow the links in the show notes to take a look at these audiobooks. So... You can get one of these plays as your free audiobook today, or indeed any other day, by signing up at audibletrial.com forward slash queens for a free 30-day trial. Of course, you can also choose any other of Audible's range of products. There's something in there for everyone. If you don't like it, you can cancel it and even keep the free book. And of course, by signing at audibletrial.com forward slash queens, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 29, Margaret of Anjou, the second She-Wolf. Before I start today's show, I have a few notices to dish out. First of all, I am very excited to say that I contributed a guest episode to David Crowther's superb History of England podcast. It was the story of Jane Shaw, the mistress of Edward IV, and an all-round fascinating woman who through the centuries has inspired everyone from William Shakespeare to George R. R. Martin. I've put a link to the episode in the show notes, or you can just find David's show anywhere where you find podcasts. Second... I would like to welcome all those people who have started listening to the show since that guest episode was released last week. I have been getting giddier and giddier over the last few days at the flood of new downloads to the show. It may take all you new listeners a few weeks to get up here, but I just wanted to say thanks to all of you for joining us here at the Queens of England podcast. Third, thanks in no small part to all said new downloads, this show has been moving up the iTunes charts in many countries, including finally entering the top 100 for the UK. It has always been a somewhat of an embarrassment to me that this show about English queenship has before now never charted in my home country, so I'm really excited about that. I would love to maintain my position, and the best way to do that is if you all could just leave a little review on iTunes, as this is the best way to move a show up in the rankings. I know it's a bit of a pain to do, but it really makes a big difference. 
And finally, I'd also like to remind you all about the best ways to keep in touch with the show. There's my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com, and the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, and the Twitter page, at Queens Podcast. If you have any questions about anything brought up in the show, or if you just have something you want to add, then these are the places to go. All that done, on with the show. Last time, I finished the episode by describing the great Lancastrian victory at the Battle of Wakefield, which saw the death of Margaret's great opponent, Richard, Duke of York. England's most powerful magnate, the leader of the rebel scum against the party of King Henry, was no more. But, unfortunately for Margaret and the Lancastrians, there were plenty more where he came from. Now, I couldn't help myself but put in that scene from Shakespeare's theatrical version of these events, which placed Margaret at the centre of the Battle of Wakefield at the end of the last episode, but actually, she was not involved in any of the combat decisions. These would have been taken by the lead Lancastrian nobles, Somerset, Exeter and Northumberland. Now, in the last show, I said that after the victory at Wakefield, Margaret then went and recaptured London, but actually, I made an error there. What actually happened was that her army then defeated Warwick at the Second Battle of St Albans and then marched on the capital, but that's where things start to get tricky. See, the people of my fair city were not at all fond of Margaret and her friends. They had been some of the most loyal supporters of the Yorkist cause and were unwilling to give up on them just yet. Richard, Duke of York, may be dead, but they still had armies in the field and it was widely known that they were regrouping under the leadership of Warwick and Edward, the new Duke of York, preparing for their own march on London. Therefore, the city held out against Margaret, denying her entry. They would have heard the devastation that the Lancastrian army left in its wake as it marched south. These stories were then amplified by Yorkist leaders in the capital, hardening the city against the royal army. They were said to be full of smelly northerners, Welsh and Scots, uncivilised barbarians all. They were also wary of reprisals, knowing that the Queen was not a forgiving enemy. The Common Council of London, though, did send a negotiating team out to talk with the Lancastrians, and it is notable for its makeup. They were all women, the Duchesses of Bedford and Buckingham and Lady Scales. This was clearly because they knew that they would be dealing with Margaret, not with the King. No man in Yorkist London would deign to negotiate with a woman, even if she was the Queen and effectively in command of a conquering army. This shows the degree of respect, rampant misogyny notwithstanding, in which Margaret was held. She made every attempt to persuade the citizens of the capital that she meant them no harm. Here is part of a letter that she wrote to them. Quote, Whereas the late Duke of York, of extreme malice long hid under colours, plotted by many ways and means the destruction of my lord's good grace, whom God of his mercy ever preserve, has now of late on an untrue pretense feigned a title to my lord's crown, royal estate, and pre-eminence contrary to his allegiance and several solemn oaths freely sworn by him, and fully proposed to have deposed him of his regality, had it not been for the wise, unchangeable, and true disposition of you and others, his true liegemen. And howbeit that he of very pure malice proposed to continue in his cruelness, to our utter undoing, and that of our son, the prince, has promulgated several untrue and feigned matters and surmises, especially that we intend to draw towards you with an unseen power of strangers, disposed to rob and despoil you of your goods and property. We desire that you know for certain that none of you shall be robbed, despoiled, nor wronged by any person in our company." The combination, though, of her being a woman, the regional makeup of her army, and effective propaganda promising that tens of thousands of Yorkist soldiers were just on the other side of the other hill and on the way to the city ensured that despite numerous deputations and delegations, 
London eluded Margaret in the aftermath of Wakefield and St Albans. She had the numbers to force her way in, but she knew that would be a PR disaster, something that she could ill afford. If she won, well then she would have sacked England's capital. And if she'd lost, that didn't bear thinking about. Seeing that this was all going nowhere, and fearful of being caught out in the field when the Yorkists arrived, she moved the army back to the Midlands, where it continued to loot, pillage, and generally ruin any goodwill anyone had towards the royal cause. Once again, then, in this war, defeat had been pulled from the jaws of victory, though I don't think it's fair to cast too much of the blame onto Margaret. She had failed to consolidate the great victories at Wakefield and St Albans, but capturing the great fortress of London when the city was set against her would have challenged anyone. The conduct of her army, as well, was hardly unusual for the time. The Yorkist army was doing just the same thing. In the wake of her retreat, Edward of York and Warwick marched on and entered London to a hero's welcome. With the death of his father, Edward now held all the claims of the House of York to the throne, and now it was held in the hands of a charismatic and talented young man, who was as brave on the battlefield as he was popular with the ladies. While his father and Warwick were defeated at Wakefield and St Albans, he had won a decisive victory at Mortimer's Cross, which saw the death of Owen Tudor, the husband of Catherine of France. He was handsome, fresh, and even just looked like a king. Those that saw him saw a new Henry V, not the massive disappointment that was Henry VI. Therefore, with rapturous support from Londoners, Edward marched out of the city in March 1461 with the confidence that the throne of England was soon to be his. The two armies met only a few miles from Wakefield at the village of Taunton in Yorkshire. The Lancastrian army led by Somerset and Northumberland numbered around 30,000, the Yorkist army of Edward and Warwick about the same. This was one of those occasions that everyone who was present knew was going to change history. This would be a fight to the death. One side was going to be victorious, the other side would find their cause in tatters. The showdown of showdowns. No quarter, no mercy, no backsies. And of course Margaret could not be there. She and her husband and son stayed safely behind the walls of York, which, rather confusingly, was in Lancastrian hands, and anxiously awaited news from the battlefield. She may not have been at Taunton, but troops bore her banner, which bore the inscription... Judica me Deus discerne causa meam de gente non sancta, which roughly translates as, Judge me, O Lord, and distinguish my cause from that of the unholy. When news came, it was as bad as it could be. Edward and Warwick were victorious, Somerset was on the run, and Northumberland was dead. It was one of the bloodiest battles ever to have been fought on English soil, with over 20,000 men lying dead on the field, but most of them were Lancastrians. Margaret no longer had any troops to support the claim to the throne of her husband and son. Yet again, the pendulum of war had swung, and now it had completely unseated the Lancastrians. England would have a new king, and his name was Edward IV. With no troops left to fight for her, Margaret took her husband and son up to Scotland, where they sought sanctuary in the court of Queen Regent Mary of Gelge, leaving England, at least for now, in Yorkist hands. It was a complete role reversal of what had happened after the Battle of Ludford Bridge that had seen the Yorkist leaders flee the kingdom. Now, it was the Lancastrians who abandoned England to the new regime, but just like last time, it would not be for long. Now in complete control, it was time for Edward to consolidate his crown. He was of course a usurper, and so had to justify his seizure of the crown from the long-time king, Henry VI, who of course still lived. This he did by a propaganda campaign, slamming the Lancastrian regime, but in particular Margaret, 
who was the clear scapegoat. Here is a poem that was distributed about the realm. Moreover, it is right a great abusion, a woman of a land to be a regent, Queen Margaret, I mean, that ever hath meant to govern all England with might and power, and to destroy the right line was her intent, and now she now wrought, so that she might attain, that all of England was brought to confusion, she and her wicked affinity certain, intend utterly to destroy this region, for with them is but death and destruction, robbery and vengeance, with all rigour. These are some classic ways of shaming a female ruler. She is presented as a woman of pure evil, someone who as a woman never should have been regent, and here is the proof. She deliberately laid a kingdom low and had nothing but ill intentions, and in the fact that she was herself foreign, she was to quote Helen Castor, quote, damned twice over by her birth and by her sex. Her sanctuary in Scotland did not help the perception that she was using foreign troops, Scots and Frenchmen, to threaten England, but she had no choice. Those were her allies. Edward used this to project this as a fight between the rightful English king, himself, against the evil foreign woman who sought to destroy them all with mercenaries. This careful ignoring Henry and aiming all the barbs directly at Margaret was a clever tactic and it worked well for him. Margaret knew that Scottish troops would not be enough. She needed more help from her native France and so she left her family behind in Edinburgh and slipped past the Yorkist fleet and made it to her homeland. But even here she had problems. She had been closely allied with Charles VII, but the great French king died in July of that year to be succeeded by his son, Louis XI. Now, Charles and Louis had been at odds for many years, with Louis always taking the opposite side to Charles, and so because Charles had favoured the Lancastrians, Louis had backed the Yorkists. However, he did take a slightly more circumspect view when on the throne. He was not opposed to helping out his cousin Margaret, but he needed considerable incentive. In April 1462, she negotiated with Louis for an alliance and a loan of 20,000 livres to pay for troops, putting up Calais as security for the deal. Now this of course scared the bejesus out of the Yorkists. They feared that hundreds of thousands of hairy Scottish barbarians and crack French troops attacking England from the north and south and they spread that fear around the country, encouraging people to take up arms to defend their homes. Left and right, nobles suspected of being Lancastrian sympathisers were being executed as traitors. There is a letter from Edward to the Aldermen of London, asking them to raise money to pay for troops to defend the kingdom against, quote, his adversary Henry, who was, quote, moved thereto by the malicious and subtle suggestion and enticing of the said malicious woman, Margaret his wife who wanted the French to have, quote, the domination, rule, and governance of England. Note how even now, after having deposed Henry, he is still presenting him as being weak, ruled by the true villain, Margaret. Now, the actual size of the invasion when it came was far, far more modest. When it landed in Bamber in northeast England in April 1462, the force numbered only 800, but of course they expect to pick up more troops on the way. There, they spent a few months capturing castles and taking much of Northumbria, but not having the numbers to break out of the region and head south. Remember that this area was arch-Lancastrian country, and so very hard for Edward to dislodge, but as soon as they headed south, they would have been crushed. Margaret needed more men, and so headed back to France to beg for some more. She set up a court there at her father's castle of Coeur with her son, but when she returned to Louis's court, she found Yorkist ambassadors seeking a truce with him. Despite her best efforts, Louis agreed to this, and soon Edward reached the same agreement with the Scots. 
Having got these, Edward then took the next step, which was to seek the extradition of the Lancastrian royals, and so Margaret was forced to negotiate almost literally for her life, seeking the help of anyone who would take up arms for them. She had very little to use to fight her cause, though. Here is the situation as described by the Burgundian chronicler Georges Chastelaine. He describes her as arriving, quote, "...poor and alone, destitute of all goods and all desolate. She had neither credence, nor money, nor goods, nor jewels to pledge. She had her son, no royal robes, nor estate, and her person without adornment befitting a queen. Her body was clad in one single robe, with no change of clothing." She had no more than seven women for her retinue, whose apparel was like that of their mistress, formerly one of the most splendid women of the world, and now the poorest. And finally, she had no other provision, not even bread to eat. It was a piteous thing to see. Truly, this high princess so cast down, and laid low in such great danger, dying of hunger and hardship. Now, no doubt this account is rather embellished, but there is no doubt that things were desperate for Margaret on her return to her native France. Back in England, there were still Lancastrian forces in the field, but they were all on the run. Somerset led one such army, but they were routed at Hexham, in which the Duke died. It's another Duke of Somerset killed in this conflict. His title had already been revoked by the Yorkists, but was claimed by his brother, who styled himself as the new Duke, but he was in France, far away from the action. Poor old King Henry seems to have spent the next few years while Margaret was in France, moving from Loyalist Castle to Loyalist Castle in the far north of England, literally at his wit's end. Eventually, in July 1465, he was captured and sent to London in chains, though he was treated relatively gently. Edward was claiming the title of king, but he did not want the blood of the former king on his hands. Remember, he was claiming that he was the good guy in all this, and that Margaret was the bad guy. Margaret was truly alone now, with pretty much no support, and her husband imprisoned. Her diplomatic efforts were coming to very little. She was calling on everyone, sending letters across the continent, but with a very few number of exceptions, among them the Duke of Brittany, she was having no luck. She wrote extensively to the kings of Portugal and Spain, as well as the German Emperor, but to no avail. You can see her desperation in the account of the Milanese ambassador to the French king. He wrote in 1465 that Margaret, quote, "...begs the king to be pleased to give her help so that she may be able to recover her kingdom." Note how he here calls it her kingdom. A Freudian slip, perhaps, but definitely indicating that everyone knew that it was really she that led the Lancastrian cause. All the ambassador writes for Louis' response was, quote, "...look how proudly she writes." Louis really was a piece of work. For five years she sought an alliance but when her opportunity came, it had little to do with her directly. Instead, it was the Yorkists that were the cause of their own downfall. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail on this now, because I will cover it in more detail in a later episode, but suffice it to say that all was not well between the Yorkist King Edward IV and his most powerful ally, the Earl of Warwick. The problem was that Warwick believed that it was entirely thanks to him that Edward had his throne, and the ungrateful little brat should just listen to him and do what he said. Edward took the view of... I'm the king, I won the throne myself, shut up. An oft-quoted illustration of this came in a sick burn by the French ambassador back to Paris that said that England had, quote, but two rulers, Monsieur de Warwick and another whose name I've forgotten. There were numerous rifts, not least over Edward's choice of wife, but the major break came in 1467 when Edward chose to ally with Burgundy, all while Warwick had been ardently working on a French alliance. 
In disgust, Warwick left court and went up north to his own lands to stew a little and plot his revenge. Warwick was a friend of the King of France, that was why he was so keen on the French alliance. Louis, though, of course, was Margaret's cousin, and up till now... Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. These were mutually incompatible positions to have diplomatically. But now? Well, everything was changing very quickly. Louis was keen on bringing these two sides together, but Margaret and Warwick loathed each other. Remember that Warwick was the chief reason why Margaret had been forced out of England to begin with. He'd been an early and enthusiastic supporter of the Yorkist cause way before it was cool, all the way back to the 1440s and 50s. On the part of Warwick, he blamed the Queen for the death of his father and brother, who, if you remember, had fallen at the Battle of Wakefield. This would be akin to an alliance between Harry Potter and Draco Malfoy, but a mutual enemy can make strange bedfellows. Warwick made his move in 1469, rising up an insurrection in Yorkshire supported by Edward's younger brother, the Duke of Clarence. The revolt started well, and Warwick even briefly held the King in custody, but eventually it all went pear-shaped and Warwick was forced to flee to France. For him and Margaret, their only hopes now lay with each other. But how to get over the problem they both hated each other and couldn't trust one another as far as they could throw a knight in full armour. For Margaret, as I have said about a bajillion times, all she cared about was the claim of her son the Prince of Wales. He was her only concern, and so was unwilling to gamble with his life. Warwick was a Yorkist, and she found it hard to believe that if she helped him overthrow Edward IV, he wouldn't just double-cross him and put Clarence on the throne, or even himself. All her chips were in one basket, making her very single-focused, but of course also very vulnerable. The French king, though, was tireless in attempting to make this alliance work, as we can see from yet another letter from the Milanese ambassador. Quote, the Queen of England, wife of King Henry, and the Prince, her son, arrived in Amboise on the 25th, and were received in a very friendly and honourable manner by His Majesty the King and Queen. His Majesty has spent and still spends every day in long discussions with that Queen to induce her to make the alliance with Warwick and to let the Prince, her son, go with the Earl to the Enterprise of England. Up to the present, the Queen has shown herself very hard and difficult, and although His Majesty offers her many assurances, 
It seems on no account whatever will she agree to send her son with Warwick, as she mistrusts him. However, just a month later, things changed. Margaret and Warwick finally met each other to negotiate at Angers in July 1470, and thrashed out a deal. They would join forces, combining the power and wealth of Warwick with the royal claims of the Lancastrian royal family, and this would be sealed by the marriage of the Prince of Wales to Warwick's daughter Anne Neville. Those of you who have been reading ahead will know that this is not the last time that we will be talking about Anne. The agreement was to launch an invasion with all the forces at their disposal. Once they had defeated the Yorkist king and forced him off the throne, the Prince of Wales would rule as a regent for his father, who by now had been completely sidelined. And at his side would be Warwick as his right-hand man. And his left hand. Both his hands, really. The Milanese ambassador describes the rapprochement between Margaret and Warwick thusly. Quote, with great reverence, Warwick went on his knees and asked for her pardon for the injuries and wrongs done to her in the past. She graciously forgave him, and he afterwards did homage and fealty there, swearing to be a faithful and loyal subject of the king, queen, and prince, as his liege lord, unto death. This was clearly a highly choreographed ceremony, but is no less significant for that. At a stroke, Lancastrian fortunes had been transformed. Margaret now had an army. Well, I say Margaret, but really it was Warwick's army, and it was the Earl that led the invasion of England, with Margaret staying behind in France with her son and his new wife. King Edward IV may have been on the throne for a few years now, but that did not mean he had completed his consolidation of power. The problem he faced is that it is impossible to please everyone, and, moreover, in order to reward his greatest supporters, he was often forced to take land away from people who still held sway. This led to a flood of support for Warwick once he landed with his army in England, and he quickly seized control of London, while an army led by his brother Lord Montague attacked from the north. Knowing that the jig was up, Edward did not even give battle. He fled the kingdom into exile in Burgundy, leaving his wife and children in the relative sanctuary of Westminster Abbey, where they would be protected from Lancastrian reprisal. When he entered the capital, Warwick went immediately to the tower, where he freed poor old King Henry. After a bit of R&R, &R, he was recrowned at Westminster Abbey, the first king ever to lose his crown to a rival and then reclaim it. When news reached Paris of Warwick's triumph, Margaret must have felt a joy that she had not felt in years. After years in exile and decades of effort, the Yorkists have been vanquished, albeit with the vital help of an ex-Yorkist, and her husband was back on the throne. All that was needed for her was to bring her son and her new daughter-in-law to London, and everything could start afresh. Victory had never been so close for Margaret, but just like every victory in the Wars of the Roses for Lancastrians, the glory would be fleeting. Bad weather and obstruction by King Louis kept the Queen from returning to England all through the winter of 1470, and it wasn't until April the following year that she was able to set sail and land back in Blighty. Once she landed, though, she was in for a rude shock. This period when Henry was back on the throne was called the Readeption, and it was extremely awkward for all concerned. Remember how Margaret had found it hard to trust Warwick when he came looking for support? Well, the returning Lancastrian nobles trusted him less. It is hard to take orders from a man who was responsible for killing a lot of your family, a man whose victories in the field had cost your king his title and your family their lands. But the real kicker was Warwick's declaration of war on Burgundy, the place of Edward's exile. This had been part of the agreement between Warwick, Margaret and Louis, and it caused the new regime, whose foundations had been built on sand, to shift violently. King Edward had not exactly received a hero's welcome in the duchy when he arrived. 
the Duke rightly saw the exiled king as nothing but trouble. Now, though, war was declared, the Duke of Burgundy had nothing to lose, and so backed Edward to the hilt. The Yorkist king now had ships, money, and men at his disposal, and so in March launched a counter-invasion of England, landing in Yorkshire. He started with only a thousand men or so, but gained support on the way, as nobles disillusioned with Warwick sought to turn the clock back a few months. The stage was set for yet another War of the Roses showdown, this time between Edward and Warwick. They met at Barnet in April 1471, just as Margaret was landing in Dorset. The battle was a resounding victory for Edward, but more importantly, Warwick lay dead in the field, and King Henry was once again captured. He really was just a hot potato in this conflict. Margaret's new alliance was in tatters, but much of the Lancastrian army remained intact, and it rallied to the Queen. What happened next is best described in the Crowlin Chronicle. Quote, the Queen's army grew daily, for there were many in those western parts who preferred King Henry's cause to the claims of all others. They were confident that the nobility and common people in those parts, beyond all others in the kingdom, were well affected to the Lancastrian line. Nor perhaps might that belief have failed them, had not King Edward marched against them from London so speedily, in spite of having so few troops with him. When both armies were too fatigued and thirsty to march any further, they joined battle near Tewkesbury. After the result had long remained doubtful, in the end, King Edward gained a glorious victory. Of the Queen's forces, either on the battlefield or afterwards by the avenging hands of certain persons, there were killed Prince Edward himself, and then there is a long list of dead nobles. It continues, quote, Queen Margaret was captured and kept in security so that she might be born in a carriage before the king at his triumph in London, and so it was done. Before I get into the ramifications of all this, I just want to point out a couple of things with this account. The first is that the army is continually referred to as the Queen's army. Not the King's army, not the Prince's army, despite the fact that he was one of the principal commanders, and it was his claim that everyone was fighting for. Margaret wasn't even on the field of battle at Tewkesbury, seeking out a church in which she remained, no doubt biting her fingernails with worry on the day of the fight. This fact shows the esteem in which she was held. Despite the patriarchal discrimination of the time, she is seen as the leader of the cause here, and that is extremely noteworthy. Also, note how she is described as being treated after the battle. She was not killed like her commanders or her son. She was captured and born before the army at its glorious return to London, a prized captive like in Roman triumphs of old. Killing a queen was unthinkable at the time, but parading her around like a trophy shows that the patriarchy was still alive and well. The defeat at Tewkesbury was it for Margaret. Her goal in life ever since she had first gazed on the face of her newborn son was to see him be king. There was no backup, no more heirs. It was just him. The Battle of Tewkesbury was his first major battle, his opportunity to make his name on the field of conflict. It was a risk throwing him in, but no man could hope to rule England, especially this England, without a marsh reputation. But he had fallen in his first attempt to seize his crown. There would be a King Henry V, but it would not be him. The final nail in the already sealed coffin was the news that came a few days after Edward's triumphant return. King Henry VI was dead. Now, I'm not going to get into who was responsible for this, but it does seem mightily convenient that just after the destruction of the last Lancastrian army and the death of the Lancastrian heir, that the Lancastrian captive king would just die. But like I said, I'm not getting into it. Margaret was still only 41 years old, not an old maid by any means, but her life on the stage of history was over. She was taken to Windsor Castle, where she remained a prisoner for some four years. 
King Edward was not a cruel man. He did not kill when he did not have to. And to quote Helen Castor, quote, He had no need to pay her the political compliment of a violent death. In 1476, as part of a peace treaty between England and France, Margaret was ransomed back to her homeland for £10,000. But that did not mean that the French king meant to help her out in any other way. Indeed, as part of the agreement, she was forced to sign over all claims to her parents' lands and titles to him. She returned to Anjou, a land she had rarely seen since the Duke of Suffolk had picked her up as a teenager all those years before. It must have been an incredible change for her. No longer the centre of attention, no longer carrying the weight of the hopes of a dynasty on her shoulders, she was now a penniless widow in her father's duchy, which she remarkably still ruled. She lived on for another six years until 1482, when she died at the castle of Dompierre. I'd love to be able to tell you more about her life in exile, but frankly we know almost nothing about it, further underlining just how far she had dropped from the great narrative of history. She was buried at the Cathedral of Angers in a fairly elaborate ceremony. Not one fit for a Queen of England, but not one that would have disgraced her. Her will actually survives, and I will quote it here below. Quote, I, Margaret of Anjou, sound of mind and thought, have a weak and feeble of body, make and declare this my last will and testament in the manner following. First, I give and recommend my soul to God. My body also I give to God, and it is my will and desire that it be buried and interred in holy ground according to the good will and pleasure of the king, and, if it pleases him, I elect and choose to be buried in the cathedral church of Saint-Maurice d'Angers. My will is that the few goods which God and he, mean the king, have given and lent to me be used for this purpose, and for the paying of debts as much to my poor servants as to other creditors to whom I am indebted. And should my few goods be insufficient to do this, as I believe they are, I implore the king to meet and pay the outstanding debts to the sole heir of the wealth I inherited through my father and mother and my other relatives and ancestors. This is, in many ways, a pitiful document. The once great queen resorted to pleading the French king to help her pay the debts she accrued in life. Leaving debts on her deathbed was thought to impact your ability to ascend quickly to heaven, and so it was very important to ensure that these were paid before you met your maker. Margaret, remember, did not just lose her English queenship after Tewkesbury. A main condition of her ransom was losing all her claims to her lands across Europe, lands that now lay in the possession of the English and French kings. But her will does show a great deal of Margaret's humanity. She, also, was deeply concerned for the well-being of her servants, attempting to make sure that they weren't shafted in the settlement of her debts. She clearly also has a sense of her place in history as a member of a great dynasty, as she talks about that as well. But most of all, it is the pragmatism of this that leaps out at me. She doesn't spend a lot of time talking about her glory days, how she was a queen in exile and things like that. She uses her last will and testament to affect the here and now, not look nostalgically on the time when she ruled England and brought the regimes of kings under her sway. History's assessment of Margaret of Anjou has changed through the centuries. History is, of course, written by the victor, but in this case that is rather muddled as there was a great change in Victor only a few years after her death, yet even the Tudor histories are not kind to the last Lancastrian queen. In the Yorkist histories, those written in the reign of Edward IV in particular, she is lambasted as the cause of the Civil War and all the misery it entailed. As I said a few times, it was far easier to blame Henry VI's advisers than the king himself, as even for rebels, that was a bit of a taboo. It was also more convenient to blame an evil harlot than a brave knight, and so Margaret became the ultimate scapegoat. 
Then again, the most famous account of her life in the few centuries after her death comes in the plays of our old friend William Shakespeare. In the three Henry VI plays, Margaret is seen as scheming, adulterous and bloodthirsty, one of the main causes of the downfall of the House of Lancaster. The plays downplay the role that the uselessness of Henry VI played, portraying him as a kind of airy-fairy saintly figure too easily swayed by his domineering wife. The most famous example of this is, of course, in York's denunciation of Margaret that I played for you in the last show. According to York, she was the, quote, she-wolf of France, but worse than wolves of France, whose tongue more poisons than the adder's tooth. How ill-beseeming it is thy sex, to triumph like an Amazonian troll upon thy woes whom fortune captivates, but that thy face is visard-like unchanging, made impudent with use of evil deeds. This interpretation of the evil scheming Margaret survived until relatively recently, but in the last few years it has started to change, and after listening to the last three episodes, I hope you'll agree that there is a lot more to this extraordinary woman than that. Margaret was not a perfect queen. While it is questionable whether anyone, especially someone who wasn't a king, let alone a woman, would have been able to hold the delicate pieces that comprised England together in 1453, is doubtful. The fact that she was French in a kingdom that had been fighting the old enemy for over a hundred years also added to the challenges she faced. And even despite this, it is clear that she lacked a certain finesse in her government. Time and time again, the regime she led during the Wars of the Roses managed to turn victories into defeats, such as after the victories at Ludford Bridge and Wakefield. Yet it is fair to say that the same can be said of York and his son Edward, whose regime was only truly consolidated when pretty much every powerful Lancastrian was dead after Tewkesbury. Margaret's single-minded determination to ensure the succession of her son was her greatest strength, but also her great weakness. It ensured that she never gave up, not even when everything seemed lost during her first exile in France before the defection of Warwick, but it also made her almost totally immune to compromise. Yet, her enduring legacy, especially for me and other fans of English queenship, is the incredible amount of influence that she brought to bear on her time. No other queen had so much power as her. She dominated the sitting king, and ruled, really ruled, and didn't do it too badly either. Unlike Isabella of France, she did not rule for power's own sake. Her regime was not a bloodthirsty tyranny, but the nature of her sex and nationality fatally compromised her ability to govern effectively. Helen Castor sums it up thusly, quote, The magnitude of her role was its own undoing. In stepping forward to champion her husband's cause, she exposed the composite authority she had constructed in his name to public view, and herself to vitriolic disapproval. The harder she fought and fight hard she did, with an implacable and partisan tenacity, the more obvious were the tensions caused by a French queen acting in the place of an incompetent English king. And little by little, the power she could command fragmented and crumbled away. Let's remember where Margaret came from, if you can cast your mind back that far. She came from a family of women who were not afraid to use their power and influence and cast themselves full throttle into the political arena, taking up swords to protect the safety of the claims of their family and dynasty. Margaret was a woman of that same mould. If you'll forgive me a little speculation, let's say that she had been married to a different king at a different time. Now for Eleanor of Aquitaine and Isabella of France, the other great powerful queens that we have covered, I firmly believe that they would have been champing at the bit, attempting to become powerful political figures, even if they had lived in more peaceful times. Indeed, for Eleanor, it is the said champing that caused her times to be even more tumultuous than they might otherwise have been. For Margaret, I'm not so sure. 
She was a woman who seized the moment when history called to her. But if things had been quieter, she may well have been an influential yet otherwise fairly innocuous queen. She certainly would not have been the most infamous queen in English medieval history, and most definitely would not be remembered for four centuries as the she-wolf of France. Next time, we will move on to look at Elizabeth Woodville, probably the most left-field choice of a queen in English history. A widow of an obscure lord, she would capture the heart of an English king, and in so doing, bring in a great new faction into the Yorkist royal court. The power struggles that resulted would define the reigns of the three Yorkist kings, and sow the seeds of the Tudor Rose. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.